0: Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 30 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today addresses common due diligence problems. This is the third episode in a three-part series on due diligence and third-party risk management. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast-focused On the legal and compliance industry. Before getting started, I wanted to remind you that the Volkoff Law Group can help you and your company to design and implement third-party due diligence programs to mitigate corruption and other risks. We provide practical and cost-saving solutions that meet Justice Department and SEC expectations and avoid unnecessary and wasteful procedures and services. Specifically, we help companies create effective risk-based due diligence procedures. We conduct independent due diligence review of third parties. We provide an opinion of counsel letter that stands by our recommendations and provides an advice of counsel defense. And we conduct independent due diligence screening, review, investigations, and audits of third-party management systems. Please contact me at M. Volkoff at Volkoff Law or call me at 240-505-1992 to discuss how we can help you. Let's turn to today's discussion, and today we're going to review some common due diligence problems. These include adverse media, sub-agents and sub-distributors, non-cooperation with due diligence procedures, high commissions or compensation, foreign official or close family member involvement, ownership verification where there's a suspected government interest, and foreign government official referrals. Remember, when conducting due diligence, you need to identify potential red flags or indicators of corruption risks, and then you need to document how you resolve them in order to move forward, assuming you do move forward. Red flags can be resolved by further investigation and factual development or mitigation strategies and approaches. Keep in mind the case of Robert Bork, a famous FCPA defendant who was convicted and sentenced to one year in prison based on evidence of unresolved red flags, from which the jury was instructed that they were able to infer that Bork knew, in quotes, that payments he was making were going to ultimately be paid to a foreign official for bribery. There are a number of tools that can be used in due diligence to resolve red flags, and mitigate risk, risks. Let's review some of those tools before we get started on the specific problem areas. First, we use obviously a questionnaire, which is electronic or written and provides information that we can then verify uh, or not verify um, concerning a potential third party. And we use basic screening tools from uh, open source intelligence databases. We also use standard contractual requirements, which include representations and warranties certifying compliance with anti-corruption laws, the right to audit a third party, to terminate a contract when a company has reason to believe the third party is engaged in corrupt or law-breaking behavior. Now, in response to specific red flags, we also have what I call the red flag situational tools, and those include additional fact factual investigation, and focused due diligence. And that may, the first step I always uh, tell people is, if you have to find out something from somebody, first ask them about it and see what their explanation is. If you're uncomfortable doing that, you can, yes, try to investigate around that person, but it's always best to ask the candidate uh, directly the question. We also have other types of tools and mitigation strategies Uh, invoicing to payment requirements, where we require detailed invoices from a third party that require a description of services that are in great detail, and make the payment to the third party contingent on a detailed description and proper invoicing procedures. And then we can review this internal control to make sure uh, that the approval of the invoices is done properly. You also can use tailored contractual representations and warranties. I always say to be creative with your contracting because you can address specific concerns that you may have by requiring a specific representation and warranty. For example, if you're concerned about whether or not there is some government official ownership in a a particular third party, have them certify to that specifically, that there is no government ownership uh, beyond the standard representations and warranties or denial of involvement, let's say, in a corruption scandal that's reported in the local media. Have them represent and warrant as to that. Uh, Always think creatively. Anything that bothers you, make sure that you put it into the contract if it fits. Other tools that you can use to sort of mitigate uh, risk further is to update your due diligence on six-month intervals, schedule compliance or financial audits, have the uh, third party execute uh, an agent code of conduct, Um, use advice of counsel memorandum from outside counsel, which we often provide for clients. Uh, And this provides an additional layer of protection because not only did you review uh, the third party risk in connection with your internal processes, but you had uh, us review it as well. So now let's get to some of the common due diligence problems. And this is not an exhaustive list, believe me, but these tend to be some of the ones that we spend the most time on uh, in doing due diligence. Uh, First is adverse media. In conducting this due diligence, it is common to identify adverse media reports about a company, its owners, or principals, or even uh, family members. Uh, And it could mean alleged involvement in bribery, other types of misconduct, money laundering, and a host of sort of political controversial issues. Um, When reviewing foreign adverse media reports, it's always important to assess the source of those reports, the nature of the allegations, and the specific facts. Some foreign press sources are not very reliable and often represent uh, specific political interests that may be against or aligned against your uh, third-party candidate, or family members associated with your third-party candidate. So for that reason, I'm reluctant to credit such reports without further investigation. And in responding, obviously you ask the candidate. This is an example of where you ask and tell them, look, we have these adverse media reports. Can you explain these and what is going on? And you need to build a record of analysis, which includes your own research media reports, Asking the third party candidate to respond to the allegations and documenting the third party's response, and then assessing the context of the reports as well as the overall accuracy and specific facts cited. When allegations of misconduct are made, it's important to determine the accuracy by asking if the person or entity was ever formally charged with wrongdoing, whether there are multiple media. Sources that corroborate the reports, or in many cases, they, there are many media outlets that just repeat an allegation that's made by one outlet and then just repeat them over and over. I found that in India, for example, to be very true. And it's always so important considering how much time has passed from the alleged wrongdoing five years, over 10 years. Does it relate directly to the third party candidate or family members? And then find out more information about the family members. If the reports require further investigation, where you are so troubled by this that you may need to sort of interview people locally, then uh, that may be a, a final step that may, you may need to do to resolve this. But usually I can get, we resolve these short of um, requiring local uh, investigational type steps and in interviews. Okay, let's go to the second one, which is sub and sub-distributors. In the high-tech and healthcare markets, for example, we often face due diligence issues where an agent or distributor relies upon a network of sub or subdistributors. Uh, in many cases, the sub or subdistributors are not directly in contract with you, the company uh, re- representative, who is employing the agent or the distributor. Now, this raises a lot of issues. Depending on the leverage that a company may have, some companies will require prior approval before an agent or distributor can employ a sub-agent or sub-distributor. And then, even though you're not in um, privity with them, in contract with them, you can at least find out basic information and run some checks on them. That tends to be burdensome, but also uh, many companies don't have that kind of leverage um, and so in some cases, the company may be limited to a different tack in terms of a pre-approval requirement, where they may be uh, limited to imposing contractual requirements and representations by the agent or distributor to conduct their own due diligence on sub-agents or sub-distributors. This can get uh, very complex, um, and usually uh, you may have layers or really so many subagents or sub-distributors, particularly in the healthcare market, for example, in China, where you'll have maybe one subagent or sub-distributor who deals with one hospital. Um, and that can be very complex as you try to resolve these issues. But some companies, if they have the leverage, will conduct due diligence of subagents and sub-distributors based on the risk ranking or sampling profiles. That's another way to sort of limit the burden is try to use uh, risk-ranking uh, sort of profiles and characteristics of the sub and subdistributors, because if they're not involved in that many sales, then uh, the risk is very uh, low. Uh, in addition, companies also will conduct audits of sub-agents and sub-distributors and secure authority to do so, you know, in the contractual ne- negotiations Uh, with the agent or the distributor who in turn is required to get those uh, requirements in their contracts that allow you to do something. Um, But this is a tough issue and it requires um, a lot of careful work and it requires sampling, it requires risk ranking and determine where your real risk lies. Let's go to another one, uh, non-cooperation. What happens if your third-party candidate refuses to complete a due diligence questionnaire? Uh, We had a situation once where they would only answer six questions, and it was in Russia, or decide they're only going to provide certain limited types of information, or they claim that local laws prohibit them from providing such information. Now, assuming my first question in this situation is, uh, I always check to make sure that there's no language or culture barrier that prevents the third-party candidate from understanding exactly what the due diligence process requires. Sometimes it's a language and culture issue where they think that you're going to engage in an investigation uh, and that they don't understand the limits of it or that it's an open-source intelligence type of investigation, that you're not going to be talking to confidential business um, associates or anything like that. If the third party, um, and a lot of times we're able to resolve this issue through that, but if the third party understands exactly what is occurring and refuses to provide information, then the question for the company becomes very simple. Is this somebody that you really want to do business with? If they're willing to not cooperate on a questionnaire, what do you think they're going to be like to do business with? Before walking away from the situation, it's helpful, though, uh, to collect information from the, ether, uh, the Internet, open source intelligence sources uh, concerning the individual or company to understand why they may be refusing to disclose information. Next issue is high commissions and compensation for agents. When reviewing a proposed contract and due diligence for a third-party agent, on occasion we see high commissions or changes or contingent char- uh I'm sorry high commissions or charges or contingent charges on securing approval of a transaction within a short period of time these arrangements obviously raise corruption risks high priced commissions payments to be viewed uh, have to be viewed in relation to the overall value of the product or the service a for example a 1 million dollar success fee in the context of a 2 billion dollar transaction may be less risky on the face of it In that specific context, it's important to review the nature and the value of the services the agent or distributor is proposing to provide. Is the compensation, for example, commensurate with documented services and market uh, comparability given the context of the transaction? The difficulty really occurs when you have an agent who has high-level contacts and he or she is valuable because of those contacts. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong about such a situation, but the risks have to be managed. In these cases, the compensation has to be commensurate with the value of the services to be provided, especially in the context of the overall transaction. In my view, the company has to include strict or tough contractual provisions that require a detailed listing of the services, that the third party provides, review of the invoice, and strict payment policies to require uh, documentation before getting paid. There are obviously other tools available to to reduce the risk, and that includes monitoring of the agent's activities, audit of the charges and expenses, additional training, certifications and compliance reminders, and obviously updating and refreshing of due diligence. The next issue is when you have foreign official involvement in the third party, meaning an ownership uh, where there's foreign government ownership interests and whether or not they can survive due diligence review. Take, for example, a third party entity in the Middle East that is partially owned by a member of a royal family who serves as the minister of education in a Middle East country. This is not an unusual situation to have such crossover. The FCPA guidance issued in 2012 provided a specific hypothetical right on this point and suggests that the following conditions can adequately mitigate risks. If the foreign official is directly involved in the government award of contracts or regulating the company's business, then that third-party setup is generally not going to work. On the other hand, if the foreign official is in an unrelated part of the government, then it can work with certain conditions. So in other words, where the third party has an ownership interest, let's say, by the minister of education, but the business itself is completely separate from any educational interest or any educational government uh, overview or control in any sense. So in that situation where you have them, no overlap in terms of the function of the business and the position held by the foreign official in the government, you have to make sure that the foreign official certifies that he or she will not use contacts in the government to benefit the business, will have usually, this works out, to have no involvement in the day-to-day business and operations, and that you notify the government that the foreign official is involved in this business and is restricted from participation. These are conditions that the FCPA guidance pointed out would help to make this situation uh, passable. The next issue is where you have a suspected government interest in an ownership verification issue. So due diligence requires verifying beneficial ownership of the third party. In some countries, it's hard to get accurate beneficial ownership information, such as Russia, China, Angola. Foreign government officials use hidden government equity interests to fund their bribery schemes. Small ownership interest, 5%, 10%, can be worth large amounts of money depending on the activities. Due diligence requires confirmation. Ask the candidate for documentation of the ownership interests. In cases where you cannot obtain such independent confirmation, some companies have used certifications of the absence of government ownership. Now that is a risky situation. Cobalt energy suffered through A lengthy investigation uh, relating to its activities in Angola where they precisely relied upon such certification and it turned out not to be true. This is an area where confirmation is critical. A government official may own as little as 3% of a stake in a a third party, but in a billion-dollar project, that can be worth a lot of money. Okay, so finally we have the foreign government referral. And this is one of the most difficult red flag situations when a foreign government official recommends to a company the hiring of a specific third party. This referral has been characterized as, quote unquote, the kiss of death. It is a difficult situation and most companies will not retain the recommended third party, almost as a matter of policy. I can imagine, however, limited situations where such a relationship may be salvageable Depending on risk tolerance and importance of business opportunity, there may be cases where the candidate can survive the due diligence. Assuming that the third party has the requisite qualifications and no other red flags, maybe uh, you can work to salvage the situation by subjecting the third party to stringent controls, financial reviews, and additional requirements. The context of the referral is important. However, keep in mind that most and many third-party referral situations by a foreign government official is usually a cover for a bribery scheme. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.wolkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mbulpump at Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals. Thank okay. you.